Last month's annual Warrior Games brought together wounded, ill, and injured service members and veterans in Olympic-style competition. They competed at what are called adaptive sports. Booz Allen participated by bringing human performance and data analytics practitioners for why and for what they learned. I spoke in studio with the senior vice president of Booz Allen's Bright Labs, Manjeet Singh. So the Warrior Games is something that was started by the Department of Defense about 10 years ago. Um, It essentially brings our active duty personnel together uh, with our veterans, uh, oftentimes many of them who have experienced some sort of injury that was introduced while they were deployed. So you have a lot of physical disabilities. You also have a lot of mental, or as we call them, invisible disabilities, where, you know, people are struggling emotionally or mentally uh, due to some of the situations or experiences they had while they were overseas. And what the Warrior Games allows people to do is active duty duty personnel as well as veterans to come together and compete in adaptive sports uh, in a way that, you know, really kind of harnesses their pride of the service that they're representing, you know, kicks in that kind of inter-service competitive nature of it, and then tees them up most importantly for the Invictus Games, which is happening in September. That's Prince Harry's uh, large, you know, program, and that is a multinational competition. So we have about 50 athletes from the Warrior Games, and then uh, those 50 athletes are going to be going to Invictus Games to represent Team USA against other service members who are adaptive athletes on the global scale. What we did at the Warrior Games is we brought our human performance stack as well as some of our data analytics capabilities to really outfit those athletes. We outfitted about 70 athletes with Aura Ring wearables, and then we linked it up to our data platform to help the athletes understand you know, what their preparation needs to look like going into the games, what the strain that their training is taking on them on a daily basis and how they need to fine-tune that, really dial in sleep strategies and recovery strategies, and show them the benefit of some restorative activities like yoga, like Pilates, or just even some basic dynamic stretching. Uh, They're also working really closely with our coaches to help them understand the benefits of all these, not only for the games, but for their their life. You know, a lot of times... And talking to these athletes, they are taking multiple medications, whether it's painkillers or antidepressants, sleep supplements. And you can imagine just the impact and the toll this takes on some of our veterans' bodies. And so having the opportunity to link up with our coaches who are all formally trained in kinesiology or sports science or cognitive therapy are helping them really understand, you know, what – uh, capabilities to kind of introduce into their life on a daily basis. So it it was awesome for us because it gives us an opportunity to engage with, um, you know, a community of users that we care very deeply about, obviously as American citizens, but then for our coaches to have an opportunity to impact their lives. Sure, for but the, the takeaway here it. is that the idea of application of data analytics, artificial intelligence, sensing, Internet of Things, all of these converging technologies can be used throughout the life cycle of a member of the armed services from ingestion to training to helping them be more effective if they should be called into battle and then when they're veterans and maybe in recovery. That's exactly right. I mean, for active duty personnel, it's you're hitting on it perfectly right because it hits to a much larger opportunity, and that is readiness. We need to assess the readiness levels of our armed services across the country, especially as you know we continue to have flashpoints on the geopolitical scale and stage with some of our peer and near-peer adversaries. It's becoming more and more critical that we're able to assess that readiness at scale. And then it's becoming more and more critical, as it always has been, that we you know extend and do everything that we can to care for our veteran population. And so I think these devices, we take them for granted these days. You know, I'm wearing, I'm sitting here talking to you, and I'm wearing no less than three devices that are measuring my my physiological responses because I'm a nerd in this space, right? But all of us have a 
Fitbit or an Apple Watch. Or Plus, our microphones are extremely powerful. They catch much more than voice. They're probably picking up weird voice patterns and detecting, you know, that I'm nervous right now as an example. But, yeah, it's uh, we take them for granted, but the power that it has to really allow us to embrace this community of users that needs our attention, um, it's right there for us. And so we just have to figure out the right way to navigate security policies and make sure that it's scalable across the country. And I wanted to ask you about spatial computing in this context because we recently ran an interview in which we found out that the Veterans Health Administration is using high-end virtual spatial, those funny things you put on their head, for lots of therapeutic purposes. So spatial computing, then, it's not just fun and games and this idea of virtual reality, spatial computing. How is that coming into the federal area, do you think? It's been interesting. I think we are starting to see, uh, we're starting to reach an inflection point. And I think certainly the announcement by Apple is going to help. You know, that announcement, I think, took a lot of people by surprise. It's a headset that costs $3,500. Well, it's not necessarily targeted towards consumers. It really is targeted with these enterprise use cases in mind. And a lot of the work that the government is doing informed their design. Uh, And so I think we are at a point now where we're starting to see those barriers break down. But, yeah, we're seeing it across what we call partial task trainers. You know, if there's a loadmaster of a C-130 who needs to run through the paces of the right way to secure the load to prevent a catastrophic accident on that flight, they get opportunities to do that without commandeering an entire C-130. We see the same thing with, uh, you know, close quarter combat operations like room clearing, where we give people the opportunity to kind of run through repetitions and really get time without having to commandeer an entire facility. More cognitive exercises as well with our special operators, helping them understand, you know, different cognitive tools that they can employ while they're deployed out in field that will help them, you know, bring their metrics in line. And then we're starting to get into the facility space as well. So you mentioned what the VA is doing for rehab purposes. That's great because it gives, you know, our our veterans an opportunity to kind of run through range of motion exercises in a gamified way that is really helpful for them. But on the facility side, we're starting to use spatial computing technologies called Digital Twin, which I'm sure you guys have talked about a lot. There's a lot of hype out there right now around it. Um, But, you know, it allows us to really model next-generation facilities like base modernization, like the operating room of the future for the VA in a way that, you know, we haven't been able to do very cost-effectively up to this point. And just briefly, not to talk about Apple, but what is needed in this area because most of the gaming devices – frankly, don't have the resolution or the ability to keep up with speed such that they get nauseating to be in. And you can't have that for any kind of long-term use. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Apple did what they did best, right? They they engineered and designed the hell out of this thing and released it when it was ready. And I think it's exactly what the market needs right now. It, you know, gives that resolution that we haven't seen before. It introduces features and functionality like a lot of the video pass-through that is just implemented in a way that we haven't seen before. And the gestures, I think, makes take some of the awkwardness. The headset's still big, right? We still have this large headset problem. And I think Over the next decade, we're going to see that form factor really start to compress down and the Ready Player One, Metaverse, Promise, all that will start to come to fruition. But we're still a ways out from that. But these are major steps, I think, in the right direction that Apple has taken. And I think what's most powerful is that Apple did it with a mind towards enterprise views. So things like mobile device management that's going to extend to these, you know, AR, VR devices um, is being done in a way that's very comfortable and familiar to us in the federal space where we can start to apply those security policies so that they can be deployed at scale. So I think that's pretty exciting. And the other big thing you hear about, and you have some involvement here too, is quantum. And quantum is not quite practical, but it's also not quite any more theoretical either. 
Yeah, we're kind of like on a um, on an offensive and defensive space right now when it comes to quantum. So defensively, you know, it's it's all about the race against China um, and a lot of our other peer and near peer adversaries. But I think China is really who we have our eye on. Uh, we know that as an example. For a lot of us that are active in the space, and I have the opportunity of working with our quantum team pretty closely, there was a report that dropped around Christmas time last year um, out of a University of Beijing that essentially made claims that they had made a lot more progress on this Shor's algorithm problem than we had seen up to that point. Essentially, what that meant was this university out of China was claiming that they had quantum leaped, to use a, a terrible pun in this situation, uh, the ability to start to break some of our highest encryption mechanisms using the quantum computing that's at their fingertips. Now, they over-exaggerated their claims a little bit, but there was no doubt that they have been making progress towards that. We know that China is trying to grab every piece of encrypted uh, data that they can from this country, both government as well as private sector, knowing that they can't break it today. But if they can harness this technology the right way, they can break it in a few years from now. And so that's kind of the defensive posture that we're taking offensively as a country. I think well, are we stealing theirs? I, no, I don't. You know, we we do not get into that that space that space as a country. Um, we I don't know why the heck not. But one, of the right. that, one of the things that's kind of held us back is that we do have these ethical boundaries as a country, how we operate, how we harness these technologies, and we frankly don't see that with some of our our peer and near peer adversaries. Um, you know, offensively, I think we're starting to do the right things. We have a lot of the research laboratories in the Department of Defense who are starting to work together to figure out the right way to harness this technology. We're kind of engaging industry the right way so that, you know, our everybody from our college students to our quantum practitioners can get the right access to these computing modules. So I feel like we're taking some of the right steps in the right direction. But like a lot of things, I think we need some more standards around this and some more frameworks around this to really accelerate adoption in the country. And there are a couple of different technological pathways toward quantum that some of the vendors are taking. So at some point, that's going to have to be harmonized, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we tend to look at it right now as the major areas around computing and sensing. And so we feel like that has the biggest consequential impact on the, the business of the country, so to speak. And so, you know, I think if some of that vendor activity could be channeled that way um, in line with the national security strategy, I think that's where we really need to go next. And everything we've talked about has one fundamental <coughs> foundation piece that ties it together, and that is the network. What in the lab context do you see coming for the next generation of networks? We hear 5G all the time. I mean, the current experience with 5G is, okay, there's 5G there. I can't tell the difference from 4G, which was not all that much better all the time than 3G. So when is the next, do you think, the fundamental uh, uptick in networking capability, wireless or wired, that's going to tie all this together in a way that makes it applicable? Yeah, I think we're we're actually starting to see it with 5G. So what's interesting is I think the most interesting aspect of 5G that we don't talk about a lot, we tend to focus on like, you know, the latency enhancements and throughput, things like that. But the the network functionality that it has introduced, things like network slicing, where the network can start to identify the traffic that's um, being distributed on it from individual nodes and can dynamically reconfigure itself to optimize the flow of that traffic. That is really, really exciting. I mean, that's something that we are working with um, out of Hill Air Force Base on one of the 5G OTAs. Um, I think other opportunities around next generation network operations and management, it sounds very nerdy and very geeky, and most of the people who are listening to this who are not in the space are probably wondering why they should care about that. What this does is it enables next generation networks to work in harmony with this next set of, you know, what we call killer applications that are coming out. 
the AR, VR applications, the spatial computing, um, even some of the more, you know, enhanced applications that are going to be integrating various components of AI will take advantage of this new kind of network topology and network enhancement capabilities that I think we're seeing the the foundation being laid right now with 5G and where it's going in 6G is just going to start to build on that. Manjeet Singh is Senior Vice President of Bright Labs, part of Booz Allen Hamilton. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more. 
and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And... Yeah, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger 
towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you've got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast. <laughs>